been welcoming everyone here. We have a good turnout tonight. I know that we have uh, visitors with us from the area, and without embarrassing anyone, I'll just say that I have family here tonight. I'm very, very happy to see them. I appreciate each and every person who has come out to be a part of this effort. Yes, we uh, are quickly um, nearing the end of this gospel meeting, and I'm going to be sad to say goodbye uh, to everyone. It goes by so quickly. Uh, the time that I had with the men today at lunch was just so encouraging and wonderful. The hospitality throughout this week has been incredible. Uh, I want to thank all of you. Uh, the song worship, uh, the prayers, every part of what has been done here by this congregation has uh, really been a boon to my faith. I know it's encouraged Jennifer, and we're, we're glad that we've been able to be a part of this. I'm especially glad that she was able to be with me this year uh, to get to know all of you and to be able to enjoy the, the sweet memories when we go back home and we remember brethren here and the things that are going on in, in uh, this part of the country. So I thank you for the invitation. Yes, we've had some good studies as we've looked at some very practical themes of worry, of bitterness, uh, going back to the Old Testament to learn some things from Moses and some mistakes that were made. But this evening, I want you to look with me in Ephesians chapter 2 at a text that I know that you've read many times, more than you can count. But in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, the, the theme of salvation by grace through faith has to be the most glorious theme throughout the Bible. But at the same time, we recognize that it is one that is incredibly misunderstood. You know, as Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2, Peter commented on some of what Paul wrote. He said in 2 Peter 3 and in verse 16, that also in all his epistles, speaking of what Paul wrote, he said, "...in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people..." twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Unfortunately, some of what Paul revealed to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, many have misunderstood. These words have been twisted to the destruction of many. And while this theme is the grandest and the most glorious of all the themes of the Bible, it is probably the most abused. And Paul even acknowledged in Romans chapter 6, that there are some that would abuse what he taught about salvation by grace through faith. Some that would say that they should continue in sin, that grace would abound. He said, God forbid. It, Paul even knew that there would be those that would misunderstand or that would twist these things. And we should not be surprised knowing that certainly with this grand theme and with the death of Jesus and the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that Satan wants to do everything he can to overturn that good news. So I want to look at this subject this evening so that we can better understand. Maybe you have a clear understanding, or maybe there's some things that we're going to look at tonight that you have not considered. But in the end, what we want to do is we want to look and see what do the Scriptures say. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4. He said, what do the Scriptures say in verse 3? And that's all that matters. Because God is the one that gave us this grand plan. He's the one that provided the salvation. He's the one that reveals to us what we have in Jesus Christ. So let's let him speak about this topic of salvation by grace through faith. 
Now let me begin by stating that in the first year, uh, it, it was not in the first calendar year, but it was within the first year of my preaching. It was early in 1994. Their preacher in Amarillo, Texas, at the Southwest Church of Christ, he said that his salvation was 100% the work of God and 0% his work or his effort. He went on to explain that he was dead, and because he was dead in sin, as Ephesians 2 clearly says, he said he could do absolutely nothing to procure his salvation. There was no cooperation, there was no work on his part. Well, that has been the idea that going all the way back to Augustine and Calvin, the idea of the inability of the human to be able to do anything, but that's because Calvin and Augustine believed that we were polluted by the original sin of Adam and Eve. And that inability led to the idea that we can't do anything, and so everything has to be predestined and planned and done by God. I was shocked to hear someone saying that in uh, this particular church. And it made me aware of the fact that there are many who do not understand the very concept of grace. And I don't say that to be rude. I'm saying that because the concepts that Paul writes about, especially in the book of Romans, it takes some time to study through and to understand. And there is a distinction between the means of God's grace and of the conditions of God's grace. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. But with this idea that salvation is 100% of God and 0% of me, I want to ask you how accurate is that? I understand when it comes to the means of God's grace, God did everything in providing what was needed. But when it comes to obtaining salvation, is it true that my salvation is all of God and none of me, 100% God and 0% me. It's an important question because I will tell you that a majority of people that we would study with in this area and where I live and, and throughout this country would believe that it would be 100% of God and 0% of me. But is that actually what the Bible teaches? And when I, when I ask this question, I want you to understand what I mean. When I say, is my salvation, I'm talking about salvation from sin and its punishment. We're not talking about financial ruin or family crisis. We're talking about eternal life. And when I say, is it all of God, I mean, is he the only active participant in my salvation? When I say none of me, I mean, I have no role, no part, no, obe no obedience, no cooperation of any kind regardless of how minuscule it may be in comparison to God's part. That's what I want to look at tonight, because this is where we would differ with many people that would claim Christ as their Lord and, and salvation by grace through faith, and yet they have a completely different concept. Maybe you would have the same concept. All I would ask is that you would give an honest examination of what the Scriptures say. Study with me tonight. And please take the time after we're through studying to be able to share any insight or ideas, thoughts that you have in the scriptures that we've gone through this evening. There's really nothing more important than our eternal destiny. And so I want to point out that if the answer to this question, is my salvation all of God, none of me, if the answer to that question, when we finish studying, if the answer is yes, then there is no need to concern ourselves with Bible study, with attending church, or with eternity. If it's all of God, none of me, then there is nothing that I need to do or to think about or to be concerned about. I'm either saved or I'm lost. 
If the answer is no, then we need to concern ourselves with our part and leave God's part up to Him. The question is this, is the justification of the soul a cooperative effort? That's what we're really looking at. I want us to point out what the issue is not, because this is where some of the confusion comes in. First of all, I want you to realize that the issue is not, is salvation of the Lord. Certainly salvation is of God. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. The issue is not, are we saved by grace? We just saw in Ephesians 2 and in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. And the issue is not, is salvation a gift? We know it is. In verse 8 again, it is the gift of God. Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. No question about these issues. And the issue is not, can I earn my salvation? There is no meritorious works of any kind that we can work in order to earn our salvation. Again, Ephesians 2 and verse 9, it's not of works lest any man should boast. So let us clear up the matter. This is not what the issue is. The issue is, am I required to do anything to be saved? In other words, do I have to listen to God? Do I have to give heed to Him? Do I have to believe or manifest myself, uh, my faith? Do, must I love my neighbor? What, what do I have to do? Think about Romans chapter 10. He tells us in verse 13 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he begins to reason in reverse. He says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I want to tell you there's some things that I've got to do. So when we, we ask is it all of God and none of me? The issue is, am I required to do anything? And secondly, does grace exclude all works on man's part? We all know that we're saved by grace, but does grace exclude all works? We receive many things by God's grace. We'll look at those in just a moment, or at least some of those. But that doesn't rule out my cooperation with God. And then thirdly, how does God save us? by grace. What I mean is, if God's grace in salvation does require my cooperation, then what is our part? That's what we're going to follow this evening, and I hope that you will be patient with me as we work our way through the Scriptures. We're not going to be reading the creeds of men or the ideas. I'm not going to tell you what I think. We're going to go to the Scriptures, and we're going to see simply what they say. The first question then the first question, am I required to do anything to be saved? As I mentioned in Romans 4 and in verse 3, Paul said, what does the Scripture say? What does it say about this? Am I required to do anything to be saved? I want to begin by looking at the book of Matthew in chapter 7. If you'll turn over there with me in Matthew chapter 7. I want you to notice in verse 21, Jesus is preaching. He's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, as we're familiar with. And in that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and in verse 21, I want you to notice that Jesus said there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He who what? He who does the will of my Father. Not everyone, not everyone is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does something. You say, well, what is that, Brett? Well, that doesn't matter right now. The question we're asking is, does the Bible teach that I must do anything? Because if my salvation is 100% of God and 0% of my part, well, then, I, then I can't, the Bible would have to teach there's nothing I can do. And yet Jesus in this sermon 
says that only those who do something will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then drop down to verse 24. In verse 24, down, down through verse 27, Jesus speaks about two men who build their house. One builds his house on the rock, the other one builds his house on the sand. But I want you to notice what he says about them. What was the difference in these two men? Was it where they were born, where they grew up? Was it who their parents were? Not at all. He said, therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And his house stood firm. Who was he? The man who did something. You say, what did he do? Doesn't matter right now. Jesus is telling us that a person who hears his teaching and obeys it is the person who is going to be saved. And he contrasts that with a person who hears these things of mine and does not do them. The only difference between these two men was doing and not doing. And do you know that that is the issue? That is the issue between what, what I'm going to be looking at and, and sharing with you tonight and what you're going to hear in the majority of places in churches throughout this area and throughout this country. Doing or not doing, that was the difference in Matthew chapter 7 in verses 24 through 27. But let's go on. In Mark chapter 10, again, we find Jesus there in Mark chapter 10 and in verse uh, uh, 17. Excuse me, I went a little bit too fast there. In Mark chapter 10 and in verse 17, Jesus was going on the road and one came running and knelt before him. We know this to be the rich young ruler. And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Now, if Jesus got a little ahead of himself in the Sermon on the Mount, this would be a good time for him to say, hey, I, I know why you asked me that, rich young ruler, because I was preaching that sermon and I was wound up and I said something about doing, and, and the truth is there's nothing you can do to be saved. It's 100% of God. This would have been prime time for him to correct it, right? But instead, he asked him, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him what to do. And the young man said, Master, teacher, I've done these from my youth. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and told him to do something else. You say, well, what was it? It doesn't matter. That's not, we're not looking at what it was right now. We're just asking the question, must I do anything in order to be saved? Is there anything that I have to do? When Jesus spoke to this man, he told him what to do. The young man was unwilling to do that. And he went away sorrowful and did not receive eternal life. Again, Jesus made it very clear there was something that he must do. Now let's look in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you, you say, well, that was during the life of Jesus. You know, he, he was under the law of Moses. Things were different then. Well, we get to Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died. He's, he's been raised from the dead. He's ascended up into heaven. He sent forth the Holy Spirit, inspired his apostles. They're preaching the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost. The first record we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. And so Peter stands up and begins to tell them about this Jesus whom they've crucified. He quotes from Joel the prophet. He assures them that whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. Then he began to tell them who the Lord was. And lo and behold, the Lord that they need to call upon, they had murdered. But Peter's good news was that he had been raised to life and that he has ascended and he is at the right hand at the throne of God. And so the, the Jews that hear this, they say to him in verse 37, 
in Acts 2 and in verse 37, men, brethren, what shall we do? What were they asking? Were they asking, what do we need to do since we've already been saved? Absolutely not. Peter just told them they were lost. Sometimes people, people go to verse 38 and they say, well, this is what you need to do because you've already been saved. That's not what they were asking. Peter told them whoever called on the name of the Lord should be saved. They were asking, how do we do that? That's their question. And that's the question Peter answered in verse 38. But they said, what shall we do? Peter told them what to do. They did it, about 3,000 of them. And the Lord added them to the church, those who were saved. You say, well, what was it? It doesn't matter right now. We're just asking the question, is there anything that I must do in order to be saved? And Peter told them in the very first sermon, you must do something. Let's go ahead to Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 is on the road to Damascus. He's going to persecute Christians there. And Jesus appears, a great light shone round about him. He fell to the ground. He said to him, Lord, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So look in verse 6. In Acts 9 and in verse 6, listen. Saul said, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? This would have been a great time. For Jesus to say to him, I know why you asked me that. Peter told about 3,000 people there was something they needed to do, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. It's 100% of God. This would have been the time for Jesus to clear that up, but he didn't. He told Saul to go into the city, and it would be told him there what he must do. I want you to underline that in your Bible. Jesus didn't say there's nothing you can do. He said there's something you must do, and it's going to be told you when you go into the city there. Of course, we read that he was told what he must do. You say, what was it? That's not the point right now. The point is, there was something that he must do. But then in Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are preaching in the city of Philippi. And of course, they've been thrown into prison because they cast a demon out of a slave girl. And that cost her master some money. And so they lied about them. They were beaten and they were cast into prison. And you'll remember about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And then the prison doors were opened, they were released, and the jailer uh, came running and fell down before them. And in verse 30, the jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They told him what to do. The Bible tells us that he and all his family, in verse 33, did what they were told to do. You say, what was it? Again, right now, the point is, what were they told? They were told to do something. I, I want to ask you, if the, if the answer to the question, am I required to do anything in order to be saved, if the answer to that is no, then why weren't these people told to do nothing? Why is it that in every case, inspired men, the Lord himself, told these people there was something they must do. Am I required to do anything to be saved? Absolutely. I think that we've cleared, we just let the scriptures, I didn't read you any articles by men, we just, what do the scriptures say? The scriptures say yes, it's affirmative. That brings us to the second question then. Does grace exclude all works on man's part? I mean, how does this work? Because 
The misunderstanding so often is, well, Brett, if it's a gift, and grace is a gift, if it's a gift, then if I do anything, then it's not a gift. If I'm doing anything, it's earned, and it's no longer a gift. I want to tell you that's not accurate. That's simply not true. But we're going to see if the Bible actually teaches that, okay? Am I, does grace exclude all works on man's part? Again, let's just open our Bibles and see what the Scripture says. You know, when we talk about gifts from God, we go to Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 11. Jesus, in, as his disciples asked him to teach them to pray, Jesus prayed and said, Give us this day our daily bread. There is absolutely no question whatsoever, but that our daily bread, that our provisions throughout the day are a gift from God. I don't believe anybody in here would doubt or deny that. What we have received today, what we received yesterday, and every day of our life is by God's good and perfect hand. It is a gift from God. So I want to ask you, if our daily bread is by God's grace, does that exclude all works on our part? 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10 says, If a man will not work, neither let him eat. That's what God said. So if God's the one that gives us the gift of our daily food, but he says that we've got to work in order to receive it, then that's pretty clear that grace does not exclude all works, wouldn't you say? Let's look at another example. You remember when Paul was on that ship and, and it was caught up in that great storm on the sea and, and even the professional mariners, the men who made their living on the sea, they were convinced that that ship was going to break apart it was going to sink and that they were all going to die. But an angel appeared to Paul that night. And in Acts 27 and in verse 24, the angel said to Paul, Do not be afraid. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sell with you. This angel revealed to him that God had given as a gift to Paul the lives of all the men on that ship. He said, You're not, they're, gonna, they're not going to die. And this is a gift of God because Paul could not have saved them. Paul didn't have the power to assure them of life. Only God could do that in a storm like this. It was a gift from God. But you'll remember that some of those mariners, they, they wanted to get in the lifeboat and get away from that ship. And so in verse 31, Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. There was a condition there, wasn't there? People say, well, no, no, if it's a gift, there's no conditions. There's nothing you can do. That's, that's not what Paul said. If, if salvation is unconditional, if, if God's grace is unconditional, then they could have been saved either way. Jump out of the ship, get in a lifeboat, stay on the ship, it wouldn't have mattered. If it was a gift of God, he's going to give him their lives no matter what. But that wasn't the case. There was something they had to do. And what's interesting is that what they had to do was something that no one was going to boast about, but it did require faith, didn't it? We'll see more about that in just a moment. But I want you to notice also in Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua chapter 6 and in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. Who would doubt that that great victory over the city of Jericho was not a gift of God? Absolutely. God made the walls fall down. He gave them that great victory. It was monumental. And God assured Joshua of that. He said, I've given Jericho into your hand. But then look in verse 3. You shall march around the city. Wait, wait, wait a minute. 
If this city's a gift, then we ought to be able to sit up here on the, on the hill and watch it fall down, burn to the ground. That's not the way that gifts have to work. You see, God's grace does not exclude all works on man's part. Not only did they need to march around the city, they must blow the trumpets, shout with a great shout. And so the people, the Scripture tells us in verse 20, shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. They had to do something. And it was still a gift of God. Let's notice also in Acts 15. In Acts chapter 15 and in verse 11, you know, uh, 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 Paul and, uh, uh, had to come down to Jerusalem and, and discuss with the uh, elders of the church there and with the other apostles about this salvation of the Gentiles and, and whether or not they had to be circumcised and to keep the law. And, and what they did is they went back to, to Bible authority to determine both to God's commands and to approved examples and to necessary implication. And that's how they determined that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised and to keep the law. And as they were going through this, I want you to notice that Peter stands up in verse 11, and he says, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. He's talking about Cornelius and his household, because Peter's the one that preached to the Gentiles. He, he's the one that baptized the first Gentiles. And he says in verse 11 that those Gentiles were saved by grace. And he said, we're going to be saved in the same manner. His point was, they weren't circumcised. And they weren't keeping the law. And God saved them, and he saved them by grace. But I want you to notice, Peter affirms that they were saved by grace. But let's go back to that event in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 35. What did Peter tell them about being saved by grace? Acts 10 and verse 35. Peter said that in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That's what he preached to Cornelius and his household, and that's what Cornelius and his household did. And yet they were saved by grace, according to Peter, according to the Holy Spirit. All of these are to show us that, work, uh, that grace does not exclude all works. Now, I understand that many times you, you, you look at Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9 and you say, but, but this is confusing, Brett, because it says there in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 9 that it's not of works lest any man should boast. That's true. There's no doubt about that. But you know, it also tells us in James chapter 2 and in verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So which is it? Well, it's not a binary choice. The reality is that we've got to understand what is meant when works are spoken about in these passages. Because many times you can find a word used in a different context, in a different way, and that's what we're looking at here. When the Bible says in Ephesians 2 and in verse 9 that our salvation is by grace through faith and not of works, there are a lot of works that the Bible reveals will not save us. Now, the Bible speaks about the works of the devil, that Jesus was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one believes that we can be saved by the works of the devil. So, yes, it's accurate to say not of works, but not only that. In Ephesians 5 and verse 11, we are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness, but to have no fellowship with them, but rather to expose them, the unfruitful works of darkness. There are some works that we're not saved by. 
in Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 19, the works of the flesh are clearly evident, and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we're not going to be saved by the works of the flesh. And in Galatians 2 and in verse 16, he says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Look at all of these works. No, we're not saved by these. And, I, and then in Ephesians 2 and in verse 9, he's talking about works that would earn or meritorious works, works of merit, something that we can do and put God in debt to us. There's nobody that's going to be able to gain their salvation in that way. There are no works that can save us in and of ourselves. So you see, when he says it's not of works, absolutely. But there's not just one kind of works, is there? There are quite a number of different works spoken of in the New Testament. But you know there's another kind of work spoken of. I want you to look with me in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus had fed thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves of bread. And so then in, in chapter 5, that occurred. And so in chapter 6, they're looking for him. They finally find him. And he realizes that they're coming to him only for the food. And so he, he is speaking to them about the, the manna that comes down from heaven. And they ask him a question in verse 28. In John 6 and in verse 28, notice with me there. Jesus says to them, uh, or they said to him, what shall we do, there's that doing again, that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The works of God are works that God has ordained. It's not works that God does. It's works that men do that God has ordained. That's what they're asking. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus didn't say, well, you can't do anything. We've already cleared that up. He said, we must do something. They said, what shall we do that we, uh, we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is, this is what you need to do. This is the work of God that you believe. Well, that makes things difficult. <laughs> Faith is a work because in Ephesians 2, he says in verse 9, not of works lest any man should boast, but he says back in verse 8 that we have been saved by grace through faith, which is a work. You know what that reveals? That the works he's talking about in verse 9 are not the works of God. When I say works of God, I'm not talking about the works God does. I'm talking about the works of God as Jesus refers to it. This is the work of God that you believe. He's talking about works that we obey that God has ordained. And they are not meritorious works. It is not a matter of tithing of mint, anise, and cumin. It is not a matter of, of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who thought he was better than the publican. And I'm, I'm glad I'm not like him. I fast often. I, I tithe of everything. That's not the works he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of works that are obedience that requires faith. And when we obey those works, they're not meritorious works, but they're works of obedience. Obedience is not meritorious work. In Luke chapter 17 and in verse 10, Jesus spoke of this very idea. In Luke 17 and 10, Jesus said, So likewise, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. You see that? Doing what God has commanded is not meritorious. It's not anything to boast in. And that's what he's dealing with in Ephesians 2 and in verse 9. 
It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Now you say, well, Brett, if, if works are involved in our salvation, then we're earning our salvation. Not at all, because not all works are equal. Not all works are meritorious. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. You take a 10-year-old child, and you give him some chores that he's got to do, or that she's got to do. Make their bed every day, they got to carry out the trash when it gets full, make sure that the, the dogs are fed, and other things like that, and they keep their chores up, and they get all of those things done. I want to ask you, have they earned all of the blessings that they receive in that house? They live in a nice home, they have all the utilities paid for, they have a professional chef that is just on order, they are Ubered around everywhere they want to go, taken to practice, taken to games, taken here, taken there. I want to ask you, are they earning all that? Because if they are, I want a job. I want to put in the same work they do and get everything that they get. The reality is they're not earning what they receive. They're merely cooperating with you. And what that's doing is it's making them appreciate what you do. They're learning about cooperating and about, about playing their part, but they're not earning. They're not earning what they do. They're going to figure that out when they leave home, aren't they? You see, some works are merely cooperation, merely working together with the one who gives the gifts. What our children receive, they receive by the gift of our hand. But there is something that they need to do in order to appreciate those things even more. So again, as we've looked at this, does grace exclude all works on man's part? Absolutely not. Over and over again, God tells us about things that He gives us and then requires that there's something that we must do. So how then are we saved by grace? How exactly is that going to be accomplished? Well, I want you to notice, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, He says in verses 8 through 9, He speaks about this because we talked about if grace doesn't exclude all works on man's part, how then does God save us? What is our part? Let's go back to Ephesians 2. He says in verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Here are people that are dead in sin, but God made them alive. Now notice in verse 5, And even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice he speaks about we were dead and yet God made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up together with Christ. And he describes that in verse 8 and 9 as being saved by grace through faith. That's the how. But let's dig a little bit deeper into it. How exactly is that going to be accomplished? We're saved by grace through faith. Well, I want you to turn with me, if you will. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 5. And I want to look at something here in Romans chapter 5. Something that he tells us about, about our salvation by grace. In Romans chapter 5, he says here in verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Now notice he's giving us a picture. This is a word picture. He's talking about access into something. He says that there is this realm of grace 
And that is that realm of, it's like the cities of refuge. It is that place where we can go for salvation. He said that we have access by faith into this grace. But I want to ask you, what do you see there as you read that verse? We have access by faith into this grace. I don't know what translation you're using. I read from the New King James Version. You might be using the ESV or the NIV or the King James Version. I want to ask you, do you see the word only in that verse, in verse 2? When he says we have access by faith into this grace, does anyone have a Bible that says we have access by faith only into this grace? Because I want to tell you, the word only is not in the text, not in the Greek text. It's not there. And yet that is what people read into this text. There's a difference in exegesis and eisegesis. Two big words. Exegesis is to draw out what God has for us to understand. Eisegesis is to read into the Bible what's not already there. And that's what people are doing when they're telling us that we have access by faith only. No, the Bible reveals to us that we, by grace, we have been saved through faith, but it is a working faith. In James chapter 2 and in verse 22, James 2 and 22, he says, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? He's speaking about Abraham in offering his son Isaac. He said, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. There's the word. That doesn't mean sinless. It means complete. Having reached its end. It's the Greek word teleos. It means completion. He said that Abraham's faith was made complete when it was coupled together with his obedience. That's what Galatians 5 is saying in verse 6 when he says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. It is not by faith only. James chapter 2 and in verse 20, the Bible tells us there, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Yes, access by faith into this grace but according to the scriptures, it is a faith that obeys. The only time that we read about faith only is in James 2 and in verse 24. He says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. But this is, this is something that we see throughout the Bible. You know, the, we speak about the theme of the Bible being the scheme of redemption. It's salvation by grace through faith. And we're going to see pictures of that through types and shadows throughout the Bible. Let's go back to the Old Testament and see some of these. Some of these examples of salvation by grace through faith, of access by faith into this grace, but by working faith. I want you to remember with me the example of the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 21, when they had murmured against God and serpents came into the camp, fiery serpents, bit the people, they were dying. And so God had Moses craft a brazen or a brass serpent and to put it on a pole and to put it up at the center of the camp. And the Bible tells us there that in, in Numbers chapter 21, the Lord said to Moses in verse 8, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. It shall be that everyone who has bitten when he looks at it, shall live. And that's what Moses did. And when anybody had been bitten, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. That was access by faith into God's grace, but not by faith only. They had to look. They had to travel to the center of the camp and look at that brass serpent. I know 
That, that's, that's so minuscule, it's almost laughable. But they still had to do it, did they not? They certainly did. This is by God's wisdom. But I want you to think of another example of this. When the children of Israel, we already mentioned this before, when they were told in, to march around the city of Jericho, the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 11 and verse 30 says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith only? No. After they were encircled for seven days. Yes, that's an example of access by faith into God's grace, but not by faith only. Naaman, the Syrian captain, in 2 Kings chapter 5, and verses 10 through 14, Elisha sent a messenger out to him, and he said to him, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. He went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. He had access by faith into God's grace, but not by faith only. The blind man in John chapter 9 in John chapter 9 and in verse 7, Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Again, access by faith into God's grace, but not by faith only. You see what I'm saying? The Bible is replete with examples of access by faith into God's grace, but in every one of them, it required something of these people to do. It was a faith that worked, faith working through love, love for God, and therefore they're obedient to His commands, not meritorious works. None of these things would merit what they received. That's why none of these people could boast in what they did. And yet it was a salvation by grace through faith, not of themselves. It was a gift of God, but it still required that they do something. You know, as we look at these examples, we see this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But I want to I challenge your thinking here. What we hear so often, and maybe the way that you have viewed this is, well, Brett, I, I've just always believed that my salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, well let's test that, okay? Let, let, let's uh, test all things and hold fast, that which is good. That's what Paul told the Thessalonians. When we talk about grace, somebody says, well, it's by grace alone. What are we talking about? What, what exactly is grace? Grace is a disposition of unmerited favor. Grace is what God has for us. It is a disposition of kindness and a favor toward us that we do not deserve. I want to ask you, is it by grace only? But Is it only by God's disposition of unmerited favor? that we don't need a Savior, we don't need His death, we don't need the Holy Spirit sent to reveal the gospel? I want to tell you, that doesn't save anyone. My point is that grace has to demonstrate itself in order for us to have that salvation. What the Bible reveals is that it is by grace, a disposition of unmerited favor, that was demonstrated or manifest in sending Christ, the shedding of His blood, then the sending forth of the Holy Spirit to reveal the gospel, that, my friends, is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 and verse 9. That's what he's talking about. So when we say grace alone, we need to stop and ask ourselves, have I even thought about what I'm saying here? 
Because if it was by grace alone, there'd be no need for Jesus to die on the cross. God already had that disposition of unmerited favor before Jesus came. By that same token, I want us to think about the idea of faith alone. When we think about faith, what exactly is that? Faith is a disposition of trust or of confidence. Is our salvation by faith alone? All, we ha- all, all, is, all that's needed is trust or confidence. We don't have to love God. We don't have to love our neighbor. We don't have to repent. We don't have to confess. Hold on a minute. We better read Romans 10. With a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness. No, there are some other things that we've got to do. It is not just a disposition of trust and of confidence. We've got to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. There's no access by faith only. James 2.24 makes that absolutely clear. Is that the concept of the Bible, or is it faith, a disposition of trust and confidence that is manifest, just like we saw with grace, that is manifest or demonstrated in believing in Jesus, repenting of our sins, confessing our faith, and being buried with Him in baptism. And by faith, that works, thus having access into this grace. That, my friends, is the gift of God. That is the gift of God. It is by His grace that we are saved, but we have access into that grace through faith that obeys. That is the point that is behind that. That's what we've got to be able to see. It is not just a disposition of trust and of confidence. But, you know, when we see this passage in Romans 5, go back there to Romans 5 and verse 1 and 2. I want you to notice the way that the Holy Spirit revealed this. In Romans 5, remember in verse 2, he said that we have access by faith into this grace. That is the Greek word, ice. It means into, unto, or toward. So in Romans 5, when he tells us about having access by faith into his grace, he uses this interesting word, ice into, unto, or towards. So we have access by faith into this grace. You know, this word is used a number of other places. The Bible tells us that we have access into God's grace. In Romans chapter 10 and in verse 10, he says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That is the Greek word ice. In Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 39, We believe to, that is into, ice, the saving of the soul. There's the word into, but that's not the only place where it's used. In 2 Corinthians, I want you to notice in 2 Corinthians where we find this same word being used. He says in 2 Corinthians 7 and in verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. You see that phrase leading to? Same Greek word, ice. Repentance is into salvation salvation. And then in Romans 10 and in verse 10, with the mouth confession is made into or unto salvation. All of these. It's not just faith. Repentance is into God's realm of grace. Confession is into God's realm of grace. But look in Acts chapter 2. Let's notice another one. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, when the Peter was asked, what shall we do, that is, in order to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, Peter told them to repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That word for, 
is the word ice, into or unto. Same word used in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 2, we have, by, uh, we have access by faith into this grace. He says that you need to be baptized into the remission of sins. Every one of these. Every one of these things is into salvation. Which one are we going to do away with? Huh? You know, when we read about Naaman, the, cat, the Syrian captain, when, when Elisha told him to dip seven times in the Jordan, I want you to consider with me that when he dipped three times, each one of those times was unto the healing of his leprosy. When he dipped the fourth time, it was unto the healing of his leprosy, and the fifth time, and the sixth time. But all six times, while they were unto his healing, they were without the realization of that healing. Do you see that? It was not until the seventh time that he dipped that he then had the realization of the healing. All seven were unto the healing of his leprosy, but it was not until the seventh time that he was healed. And in that same way, my friends, belief and repentance and confession are clearly all into salvation without the realization of salvation. Without the obtaining of salvation, they are unto it. But it is when we are buried with him that we are raised up to walk in newness of life and receive that salvation. That's the picture that the scriptures give. That is the access by faith into his grace that we see here. But I want you to notice that this is faith working through love, as we saw in Galatians 5 and in verse 6. And as we saw in James 2 and verse 22, when he speaks about Abraham in, in offering his son Isaac, he says, and by works his faith was made perfect. That's exactly what we're seeing here. We're merely obeying God, not by meritorious works, but simply through obedience. So when, this is a question, we, we're asking how, we just saw how. It is by faith that works, but, but let's let the New Testament tell us when. When are we saved by grace through faith? I want you to notice it in Ephesians chapter 2. Not, start with me in verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When did that happen? Look here in the text. When are we saved by grace through faith? Go back to verse 5. When he made us alive together with Christ, he said, by grace you have been saved. He says that when God made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up together with Christ... Let me ask you something. When was Christ made alive? Was he made alive when they put him in that tomb? No, he was made alive when God raised him up. And he says that we're going to be made alive together with Christ. The same way he was. He was made alive when he was raised up. That's when we're going to be made alive together with him. And that, according to verse 5, is when we're saved by grace through faith. So when you read verses 8 and 9... In order to understand them, you've got to go back to verse 5 and 6 to know when. When are we saved by grace through faith? When we're made alive together with Him and raised up together with Him. Let's compare this.
to another epistle by Paul. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, I want you to notice there in verses 12 through 13, Paul said that we are buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses, that sounds like Sounds like Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't it? You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. When? When? He says that he raised us with him and he made us alive together with him. Ephesians 2 says that's when we're saved by grace through faith. When does that happen? He says it's in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, let us believe and proclaim salvation by grace through faith. I believe every word of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but I also believe verse 5 and 6. <laughs> and that verse tells me that we are saved by grace through faith when we are raised with him in baptism and made alive together with him in being raised with him. Notice it this way. Ephesians 2, 5 through 10 says that we're raised up together and made alive together with Christ, and in that we are saved by grace through faith. Colossians says that we are raised up with Him and made alive together with Him in baptism. You know, there is a principle, I mentioned this the other day, that two things equal to the same thing are equal to one another. That's just axiomatic. There's no way around that. And so if we are holding fast the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, we're taking everything that God has to say about the subject. He's telling us. He's making it clear. I know Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, but they're not impossible to understand. What we've got to do is apply ourselves. That's why he says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Give diligence, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. We can know these things, but we've got to be consistent with it. In Colossians chapter 2, what we're seeing in verses 12 through 13 is that we have access into His grace, raised with Him, made alive together with Him, and forgiven when we are buried with Him in baptism. And notice He said that in which we were raised with Him through what? Faith in the working of God. So many people will tell us, well, Brett, if you believe that you've, you've got to be baptized to be saved, you're putting your faith in your own works. That's not what the Holy Spirit says. You say, well, well baptism, it, it, if you trust, if you've got to be baptized and you're putting your faith in the water, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that if we're baptized in the name of Christ, then our faith is not in the water and it's not in ourselves. It is in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. We are going down into that water knowing that God raised Jesus from the dead and because we know that and believe it with all of our heart based on His uh, uh, revelation, that we are trusting in Him to raise us from spiritual death when we come up out of that water. That's New Testament baptism, and that is the baptism in 1 Peter 3, 21 that doth also now save us. This is what the Scriptures have to say about this. Our baptism demonstrates our faith in the power of God to raise us from death. So, how are we saved by grace through faith? First of all, the provision's been made by God. The shed blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for all men. In Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9, there's not a limited atonement. 
That atonement was made for every one of us here and everyone in this world. The gospel of salvation was revealed, and it is the grace of God appearing to all men through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the provision made. The death that we could not provide, the uh, uh, gospel that we could have never known, it is divinely revealed. It is the divine mind of God. But what is the response necessary by us? We've got to hear the gospel. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Men must hear it. Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? And then we must believe that gospel, Mark 16 and verse 16. We must repent of our sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. We must confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10 and verse 10. And we must be baptized, Acts 22 and verse 16. Now arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Friends, God's done His part. As we look at this great theme of salvation by grace through faith, yes, if we're talking about the means of salvation, the instrument of salvation, the plan of salvation, that was 100% God. But when we're talking about the conditions of God's grace that attach to this, what God requires of us are those things that no one could boast in, but it requires faith. That's what's so brilliant. When we looked at all those Old Testament examples, marching around the city, dipping seven times in the Jordan, looking at a brass serpent, you see, doing nothing requires no faith. Anybody can do nothing. And works of merit require no faith. But doing the commandments of God, marching around the city, that takes faith. Going down into the belly of a sea with walls of water on each side to cross over to the other side. I want to tell you that takes faith. Looking at a brass serpent to be healed takes faith. And what God has required of you requires that you believe in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's salvation by grace through faith. And praise God, we can understand it. What do you need to do tonight? Do you need to respond do you need to be baptized? Everything is ready and we can assist you. And if you've obeyed the gospel and yet you realize that you have left the Lord, don't leave here tonight without being right with God. If you need our prayers, if you need anything that you can be in righteous and standing before God in, in, in acceptance, then let us know what that is. We want to assist you with that. Whatever it is, please come while we stand and sing the invitation song.